Well, what's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Rachel Mercer. We've agreed that her rap name would have been Mercy Mercer earlier on this call. You weren't here for the meeting, but we had a quorum and we agreed it. Rachel is the VP of RGA. VP of is not really how you do it. I had to learn these things when I moved to America. Rachel is the VP, Head of Strategy of RGA at New York. Plays a pretty big role with strategy, with operations, within strategy and influencing operations within RGA and how they do strategy, broadly speaking. Highly influential. Uh, not that a this lot, really... That's a lot of strategy, Mark. That you're I know. So much strategy. It's my trigger word. Strategy of strategy. So you might know, not know yourself when you're not working. I don't know who I am and nobody pays attention to me unless I say strategy three times in a row at the very start of any interaction. And Does I'm it like, need okay. to be in the bathroom, in the mirror, and then you turn lights off? That's... Uh, when I'm crying and it's, it's late, <laughs> at, late at night for me, usually I'm, I'm, I often have a towel wrapped around me in that moment. And it's just, it's just a really big, ugly cry for the record. I'm okay with comedy, even though we're all going through difficult times. Um, and so comedy will come out. I can't help it. Rachel might be able to help it. We're going to talk about managing clients through crisis and specifically the coronavirus crisis, the coronavirus crisis. That's exactly what we're talking about. Rachel, in New York now, around March 11, 12 from memory is when a little, there were like rolling closures of mm -hmm. things, you know, things like sport and certain shops and schools started to get some notices and et cetera. So it started to happen in, happen around then. We're a month and a half into it, six, seven weeks. I can't count anymore and I don't know if time exists anymore, but like, let's go two months. What have the past two months been like for you? I mean, they've been absolutely they've been absolute madness. I think on a personal level, we had a very different experience because my husband and I were going on an overdue vacation. Uh, we flew to Spain. We were in Spain for maybe like 36 hours. We had the Trump administration close the borders um, and we had to spend an exorbitant amount of money to get on the first flight back out um, to come back um, to then no vacation because then we went, I basically went straight into the office because offices closed that Friday. Um, everybody started working from home and all of our clients started shifting almost all of their communications immediately. So, and mm -hmm. as we all know, strategy is the first one that gets hit in a crisis for this. And I think while the way forward can feel relatively clear at times, so we've been talking about, I think Esther Perel puts it quite well in that um, what we're actually all going through is uh, shared grief because we're losing our sense of normalcy. We're, um, we have no predictability in our day-to-day -day lives. I think while we can start to advise clients on, you know, trying to cater to that grief cycle, one of the things that I've realized in trying to navigate some of this is, is making sure that I'm getting my own timing right. Because, you know, when I was making presentations, you know, in the third week of March that we're talking about, you know, the fact that we probably weren't going to get back to offices or back to normal at the earliest being September, Mm -hmm. um, there were not a lot of people who were necessarily open to hearing that at that time. And I think understanding and accepting that clients are on their own accept grief and acceptance curve has been a, a, a real sort of challenge to learn how to navigate, I, especially I hear, in recent weeks. I, hear, I remember seeing the 36-hour journey 
the out of office journey and then you mm-hmm. coming back and I'm like total Rachel couldn't leave work for more than a day and a half. She's really got to work on that sort of stuff. But like even before that trip, were you having a lot of serious conversations about what was going to happen? Because when crises like this hit, to your point, you know, I was like, we're going to be inside for like six months because you need a vaccine and the waves. And, and at the same time, if you say stuff like that in some environments, so like you're being negative, why aren't you more optimistic? And it's like, I'm being scientific. And so that can lead to this paralysis where some people would want to maybe just to deal with being alive, carry on as if things are normal until like, oh no, we're shut down. Okay, it's real. What, what was happening before you took that time off? I know it was brief. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry to make fun of it to your face. No, but no, it's okay. Before you, before you took that time off, were you having serious discussions about what was going to happen with clients and with, uh, with, with our GA? So there wasn't widespread discussions around it. So there was maybe like casual conversations in the office and, you know, when, when we were going to Spain, it had started to surge in Italy. And so I had a lot of friends, you know, asking, how do you feel about going to Spain? And I was like, well, it makes a lot of sense that it would be isolated due to, you know, fashion week or those types of things. Um, We had been through things like SARS or H1N1 before. My husband and I were living in London during the Ebola crisis. And I remember then when I was like, we should just shut down everything and we should stock up in our 500 square foot apartment. And so this time around, I don't think I took it as seriously. Um, I think it was slightly different too, because we were going with my parents. And so we were doing, it was a little bit of a, a game of chicken that we were playing with them. Like if one of us pulled out, then you would end up indebted yeah. <laughs> um, in that situation. But yeah, it hadn't been widely discussed at RGA. Um, they had done a really good job of sending out emails at a global leadership team level around like monitoring things, making sure that you had access to things like hand sanitizer. There was extra soap in all of the bathrooms. I think the cleaning schedules had changed, so they were being extra diligent. Mm-hmm. And I think they had moved to work from home the week that I left. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that would probably be like the first or second week of March that, that wasn't okay. much earlier than that. I mean, it was, it was also abstract unless you were in it. And I remember seeing images from the, the fashion shows or d- discussion about the fashion shows and still it's like, yeah, but that's over there. I mean, and I'd just mm-hmm. been in Lyon, which is right near Italy. And I think I had it and might have caught it on the way back. Uh, but it was like, that's, that's over there. That's, that's weird. And, and even when Ebola struck, it didn't really hit New York much. There's a family we know that's actually from Nigeria and goes back to Nigeria quite often. And they were the only family that I know that was sort of, was talking about it a lot because the kids were getting treated in a kind of a racist way. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. And so there's a lot of stuff going around the school. I think the school had to get together and be like, hey, you, you need to calm down and stop treating these people like this because they don't have Ebola just because they're Nigerian or mm-hmm. just because they've been to Nigeria in the past six months, they don't have it. And and, and so these things have these, these strange, um, often especially for minority groups, uh, mm-hmm. really, really strange effects. And again, if you're not in a minority group, that's abstract. The geography of mm-hmm. it's abstract, if it's Italy or if it's Wuhan, and you're sitting in kind of one of the, we think, epicenters of the world of uh, of business, trying to make decisions about it. It's um, but you're still a human. There's kind of mm-hmm. a lot of stuff going on, right? When you when you got back, what was the what were the next couple of weeks like for you? I mean, it was again a little bit of insanity where I think you're adjusting to working from home, which you haven't done before. I think 
Adam Grant talks about sort of two different types of people at work. There's integrators and separators. So there's integrators are people who put like photos of their family on their desk. They're comfortable working from home, um, those sorts of things. And then separators um, physically and mentally separate work life from home life quite significantly. And and I'm very much one of those people. They talk about like... um, firefighters or people in uniform come come home and then they'll immediately take off the uniform. I do the same thing with my uh, work clothes. So I think it was for me an exceptionally hard divide where um, I'm usually used to having home time versus work time and blurring those lines further is never mm. particularly helpful. Mm. And, and let's face it, your line, the work line, it's like really big. It's the clear majority of, of Rachel most, most of the time. Yes. I never stop thinking about my my work. It makes it um, particularly trying overall. I'm going to bully you through this uh, deep and meaningful conversation. You know that. That's why you turned up. You expect it. Uh, The funny thing is with the integrators versus separators, uh, I'm going to be a little bit flippant with this. I'm like, grew up in a stable family, did not grow up in a stable family. In a stable (laughs) family, not in a stable family. Because like other... Sometimes your coping mechanism is to separate things if you've had to deal with a little bit of excessive chaos. Know what I'm talking about? Oh, that's a, such a surprise, Mike. Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. All right, let's let's get this. I'll, I'll, I promise to stay closer to this topic. So no, it's okay. We can go deep anytime. Careful. I am wearing my finest dad hat right now, and I like to go deep <laughs> when I'm wearing my dad hat. What were your conversations like with your clients first month? What were their needs like? What, what, what were they asking? What questions were they asking you? It, it was highly dependent on where the clients are based and um, what type of business they're in. So I think for those that have much more stable businesses at this point in time, so let's say like financial services companies, technology companies, telcos, ones that don't have as much risk on the front lines right now. We were just getting more broad strokes questions around like, how do we think we should, there was like the first week back where we had the very urgent fires, which were what do we currently have in market and what do we need to pull from the market overall? Then the question to immediately follow that was how do we need to shift or pivot our marketing and our key messages over the next four to six weeks because a lot of companies end up buying media. Um, They tend to do it well in advance. Um, So it's one of those things where if you shut it off, you don't get the money back. Um, So there is a rush to get, was a rush to get new assets out there. And then now after that, we're starting to get into conversations that are about, okay, as we look to Q2, Q3, Q4, What does that mean for the type of marketing and communications that we need to be putting out there? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we're also trying to have larger discussions with them about if they should change their annual plans, which usually tend to happen, you know, as you know, six to 12 months in advance, you know, if they really need to consider a lot of their key, key messaging, knowing that up to... 40 or 50% of Americans are probably going to be unemployed or affected by this crisis. Spending is going to be substantially down. How can you sort of maintain some level of integrity or just anticipate the changes to your business? And I think, you know, for our clients that are based in the Midwest or the South, when we first sent over things that were saying like, you know, 
the jobless numbers are going to only continue to go up, that the data points around infection rates are completely wrong because it's based on tests, that this is going to be a lot more widespread and deeper than you're anticipating. It, it took, it really just took them seeing it in more consistently in the news yep. than like hearing it from me or an expert partner at the end of the day. It was helpful to create a lot of the documentation in advance because now I think we know when they're ready to see it, we'll have something prepared. But I think a couple of the mistakes that I'll admit to have making made in the first few weeks was um, I had a little bit of a Cassandra complex was telling everyone how it was going to be, but I don't think anyone was was really ready to listen. Yeah, but I mean, if if you're not in a made, like in the Northeast, for example, then New York and what was going on here and coming out of the media here, it would have felt like it was coming out of Milan because there are certain tribal attitudes within the US where if you're in the South, for example, you're like... Uh, us all kids, people in the Northeast, they're so elite and liberal. What do they know? We, we live where we are because we don't want to be around that. It's not going to come here. We're free. <laughs> we have liberty, right? And I'm, I, I think these things are actually true, even though I know I'm taking on a voice that might sound like I'm judging. I'm not judging because I get around these mm-hmm. areas and I, I find it, I'm really curious about these attitudes because I didn't grow up with them. But the, there was like this initial reaction and we saw it, for example, I think the governor of Kentucky was trying to tell people in Kentucky to not go to Tennessee and party and go out. And then you see photos or videos of people in Nashville, like having massive parties. And it's like, you know, people are dying right now and you're probably going to take it back to your, back to your areas. But this played into certain uh, narratives that are decades old. Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with clients in some of these places, they're going to, those narratives will be in them and it's not whether they're right or wrong. It's just, they're going to be in them. So I I could totally understand that Cassandra complex. When when did you find that the clients who were in, well, who were away from New York started to pay a little bit more attention to it? Mm, Probably in the last three to four weeks. So again, like we were just a little bit ahead of the curve and how I think we were thinking and, and being affected by things. But I think we're now also confronting a little bit of an ethical dilemma when it comes to communications, right? Because I, I know this is a standard trope about America and that it's more divided than ever before um, into more and more extremes. And so when you think about how people are consuming their media, how they're confronting this crisis is going to be increasingly polarized. So then does it start to be that you as a marketer should be making different messages for different demographics or different Mm -hmm. people? Mm Because originally we were trying to say based on their level of acceptance, we should probably do that. But now I'm concerned that I'm starting to advise brands to further divide some of the discourse in this country. Um, oh, that's what the politicians have, have done. And that's been engineered. Uh, Hypernormalization, a documentary by Adam Curtis, who also made The Century of Self, which looks into the founder of propaganda, well, public relations, one of the founders of, pro- of public relations, Edward Bernays. This stuff is known. The politicians do it. It's just, I, I actually feel, regardless of what any either of our politics actually are, is that people who lean a little bit left, we're like, no, we've got to be this caring, monolithic thing. We've got to put this beautiful, noble point of view out. It's going to be national. Why? That's not actually mm-hmm. how America works, let alone other countries. But America is especially, it's a bunch of different countries that are put together with really nuanced points of view. And for people who aren't here, when I've traveled, they're like, huh, how's about America? You're like, mm-hmm. 
it's not one place. <laughs> there's everything. And so I think what you're talking about is, is, is true. There's, there's a point of view that you could do it through the big five personality traits as well to pick mm-hmm. different messages based on someone's attitude towards openness or towards uh, community. Conservative brains, from what I understand, tend to be more community focused and more easily triggered by change and by, which is truism, change. And um, they're, they're more wide for threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it totally makes sense. How, how are you, are you making any of this stuff happen? Lots of yeah, there's, different there's some things that we're starting to roll out. So again, we're, we're still trying to do it based off of the, what's it called? There's the five stages of grief, mm-hmm. Dunning Kruger effect. Is that it? Um, maybe not. Kruger effect's a bit different, but I know the, the five stages of grief. I don't remember exactly which study it was, but um, so we're right now trying to do it based off of what stage of grief that you're in. And then we're trying to do a state by state analysis so that then we can just localize it. So we're doing some work where we're trying to analyze it based off of news headlines that are happening in the state to understand Mm -hmm. where the state is in messaging and then trying to use that to enforce media plans Mm -hmm. um, right now. Yeah, and for the because Dunning Kruger effect's really interesting. In Pritchard, uh, who's, who's in Australia, wrote a book, kind of building on the idea. The Dunning Kruger effect is that. Do you guys have a secret gang, a secret Australian gang, or no, is it a very public gang? He is now Australian. I, I wish I had a gang. Why do you think I do podcasts? Because I have friends, Rachel. <laughs> my friends are on my pod. I have a few friends, but my friends are on my podcast. Gosh, my family just locks me in my bedroom, and then I'm like, who do I want to talk to? Do you want to do it? That's, that's basically what happens. But the Dunning-Kruger effect, isn't that where competent people feel that they're incompetent because they know they don't know everything, but a lot of incompetent people think they're competent because they don't know that they're incompetent? Yes, that's probably what it is. It's, it's, worth, um, it's worth looking into. Um, uh, it's going to bother me who, who came up with these five stages of grief, but anyways. I'll, I'll, I'll find it after I give you the next question. So what you're saying is you're potentially rolling out communication that is going to be based on where the region is according to the five stages of grief mm-hmm. would there be different messages within it based on potentially political outlook or the big five personality traits for example i don't think i've thought about that yet but i think that's a good shout we're basically trying to say to advise clients to have sort of two or three stages of comms the same way that they would in a sort of traditional ad campaign but because above the line um, is usually universal. Try to use digital to be a bit more targeted with where this is going to roll out at any point in time. Are you and your teams doing much in the way of broadcast media right now? Because I know RGA's had a long history around advertising and then a lot of product and platform work. And then again, recently, relatively speaking, back into advertising with some big broadcast work as well. Mm -hmm. what's, What's the mix of work that you're involved with right now, you and your teams? I mean, I, I can only talk to the accounts that I specifically run, but um, most of the things that I tend to work on are digital and social oriented. So things like the Pay It Forward Live program for Verizon, which I think is a, as close as we've gotten to broadcast for them in recent years. There are other clients that we have within the agency where we are um, creating unique broadcast spots um, as well, but that's managed by different teams. So the reason that you might have thought it was Danny Kruger is because the psychologist, her name is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. So there we go. It's a hyphenated last name. Uh, so with the discussions you would have been having with at least the client you just mentioned, little and others, about live streaming right now, obviously mm-hmm. there is a Cambrian explosion. It's everywhere. 
Cambrian explosion of volcanoes exploding with live streams. Visualize that. Mm-hmm. H- how do you help them work out whether to do it in the first place and then how to do it in a way that's appropriate to the time? And finally, how to get attention for it? So I can, I always talk about if the brand has a right or a reason to play there. I think for Verizon, especially because the foundation of what they provide is connection to the people that you love, to the things that you love, because otherwise your phone is just um, like a black mirror without service. Um, we were able to, I think, make a very clear connection to something like live streaming for them. It's actually something that we've been trying to push them on quite a lot recently. But um, there's a really good old model that I want to say that is done either by FCB or JWT that talks about like four different categories of consumptive goods. So there's ones that require like quite a lot of thought and not a lot of thought. And then ones that you love a lot and then you don't hold a lot of love for. So things that you think about and love a lot are things like cars, Mm -hmm. things that you um, don't think a lot about and love a lot are things like candy bars or Nike, things that you don't want to think about a lot and don't really love are things like toilet paper or Q-tips and then like insurance and banks are in the other categories. And so like, if we're talking about things like live streaming, are you in a category that people love a lot and they have a reason to want to tune into you is really like the first primary question. And then I think asking yourself if you have like a specific opportunity that is ownable and, and distinct to you goes, goes next after that. Okay. And I know there's, I know there are certain things you can't talk about. However, the Verizon example, it's been live, like, mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the actual thinking in it through the little gauntlet run you just took us through? How did you work out answers to your own questions for Verizon? That's, that's my question. Yeah. So Verizon's in a very highly contested category where everything's a little bit of a sea of sameness between AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, those sorts of things. One of the things that any telco provider needs to do in the category is make sure to give customers a reason to start to to like them a little bit more. For us specifically, we're trying to provide like very differentiated reasons from AT&T and T-Mobile um, to, to have you guys like us better. And so our suggestion for them from a social category is the way to get greater attention and the way to build love is to like offer things as a service, which like live stream access to entertainers does. And then the the lens in is through um, passions that are specifically activated by the service at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Mm-hmm. So things like gaming, for example, is something that is highly enabled by Verizon and those sorts of things. They also have a lot of really close ties to music partnerships and they offer things like Apple Music and stuff like that. So um, for us, it's been actually really exciting because this is a strategy that we've been working with them for a long time on. And, you know, I hate would hate to say that it only takes a global pandemic to get on strategy, but... Um, yeah. But it, it feels the most authentic and distinct to, to Verizon specifically for their scale. There was, so I didn't, I don't usually do much preparation uh, for interviews, but there, wasn't there a television ad slash commercial for Verizon two to four weeks ago that seemed relatively responsive, reactive to the times as well? Were you and RGA involved with that one? So that, um, we work as part of an IA, like an integrated agency team. So McCann does all of those. And I actually think that they do, they did a very good job 
with that. So they pivoted very quickly to have a we're here and we're ready message. Mm. Um, and readiness is something that they own a lot for. Okay. Yeah, look, I, in, generally speaking, I love other people, especially other people who aren't mean to people that I like. But, you know, there is that quote that uh, hell is other people and mm-hmm. uh, interagency teams. It's a lot of other people. That's all I'm saying. Um, have you had to counsel any of your clients on a personal level? Not yet. I think like we have the sort of, we have the opener for every Zoom call that's saying, you know, uh, here's how we're doing right now. And, you know, joking about how awful the day is or if we're screaming into the void. Um, But I don't really have a relationship with a lot of my clients where um, we're calling each, we're like best friends or calling each other up on a, on a casual basis. I mean, you know me, Mark, my, my default mode is um, socially awkward. So I don't know, like making friends with clients is not a special skill set of mine. That's why I really appreciate client service partners. They have some superpowers in that regard. It's true. It's, it's funny because when you see brand trekking of telco companies, it's often like, which is the least unliked. And I feel like for mm-hmm. us, we've, we've got a similar graph, which is like socially awkward. And I'm slightly less socially awkward than you sometimes. And that's why I'm like just hands over, like hands pummeling into your face, trying to like <laughs> stir you to see what I can get out of you. But it comes from a place of uh, very difficult eye contact situation mm-hmm. sometimes. I'm joking. What? Um, can you talk about any of the most uh, surprising questions or asks, which could be about a task that you and the agency need to do? Uh, or it could be a question that a client needs research on to clarify like what's going on. Have there been any like, Oh, didn't even, it, it may be a funny way or a serious way. Like I didn't even think to investigate. That's totally great or hilarious. Uh, I don't know if I've had funny or hilarious questions yet from clients. I do think, um, you know, the harder questions that I think we've had to answer are, or maybe not harder. The easy, the easy ones to answer are things like, what lessons can we learn from previous recessions when it comes to our advertising? And can you advise us on like how we should continue our media spend? Can you help me make a deck to go to our CEO to tell him that he shouldn't slash our marketing budget? And here's why. Can you help us understand how we're going to stay on track for all of our brand KPIs? I think some of the harder questions are more around things like tone. I think understanding the timing and the right tone and how to be authentic to what, where the brand has been previously. Um, I think we've all seen a little bit of that sea of sameness where like in this unprecedented time, we're together, families, 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 blah, blah, blah. It can be really hard to tell them like when is the right time to come out of it and also find the brand that is most appropriate for it. So like even for our financial services, some of our financial services clients, we're talking about things like there were ads in 2008 from Charles Schwab that were talking about uh, what do I do with my money now that I have less of it? And Mm. we're having a lot of conversations around when we can start to address it. Because again, we're definitely not there now, even with our unemployment numbers being what over 16 million at this point, where it will really be as again in another like, three to six months. And then can I actually predict if people will be open to that kind of message or resentful to that kind of message? That's certainly a, a risk. Yeah, it's, it's intense. There's um, an interesting documentary called Dirty Money. And I think it's the first episode it goes into Wells Fargo, which is mm-hmm. obviously a very longstanding financial institution in the US but with some uh, predatory sales practices in recent time that they denied and it led to a lot of bad mental health 
problems with people and they lost jobs, let alone their customers. This was people internally. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think in crises, more than ever, and I, this is something that I'm hopeful for, even though we, we, we've all worked with clients who, if you scratch a little bit below the surface, at some point in their, in their history, like, well, you did that? Uh, really? Mm-hmm. It's, it's just it's the way it is. You got to work out how to kind of, kind of find some kind of peace with it. But 2008, there were a lot of the big institutions, I'm not asking for your comment on this because it's, you know, to, I don't want to make you awkward or get in trouble, but like there were big companies who got away with a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's very awkward to then come out with like a patronizing campaign saying, you know, hey, we're all in this together. And it's like, no, you got bailed out and your CEO is still getting massive bonuses and my whole family is homeless now. Like, so that's, it's going to be, I'm, I'm kind of curious just from a societal point of view, comparing 2008-ish to now and how brands and business, sorry, how businesses behave and then what happens with their brands in the future. And, and, and if they're forced to be more aware of in a good way, mm-hmm. how they can actually help versus just like, oh, we're just going to get our bailout and uh, whatnot. Because the thing is, as, as you would know, in a lot of the legislation that's getting rushed through the governments right now, there's a few little things that probably are not in the interest of the general population. They're in the interest yeah. of a handful of people. I'm not trying to draw you out on, on that particular one. Well, how do you talk through tone right now? And, you know, you talked about scenario planning, about what's live right now, what to do, what we should do about it, what would be live in the next four to six weeks, and then what would be live, you know, six to 12 months, et cetera. Mm-hmm. How do you see tone potentially navigating that, the grief spectrum? And to what degree can a brand have a unique tone while acknowledging a tone that they should probably take? Because I'm sure that's mm-hmm. going to lead to some interesting debates in, uh, in creative reviews. I think the, basically the exercise that we're actually going through right now with a lot of our clients is educating them on what tone is and what that means. Because the, the reality is like, you're talking to me, Rachel Mercer, and if we were to have a serious or a tense moment, my tone with you might change, but that doesn't change me from being who my character is. And I think what we're act, actually act more actively trying to steer them away from is going, you know, far too patriotic or far too we're here for you when it's not connected back to a lot of the heritage of their brand or what they've been how they've been talking to people so far so we're really just getting them to some of that first step which is like trying to keep them within the the bumpers or the guardrails of where they've historically been Mm -hmm. um, before we can even get to some of those longer term ones so like i honestly haven't started to think about too deeply what it means three months from now because I'm more deeply focused on where do you have a right to play right okay. right now. Does that make sense? It, it does. I, I like the idea of discussing flexibility of tone because historically speaking, account planners and strategists in advertising agencies would focus on like four, three or four adjectives to describe a tone. And if you're doing like brand consultancy, it's it's like an even more intense endeavor. And yet people of variable. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get angry, you get sad, you get happy. You're not always this monolithic identity. We have multiple kind of, from what I understand, personalities in our heads and sometimes they come out in different ways, let alone taking into account the different channels that you need to appear mm-hmm. on and that some of them you've, you've got to act in a way that's closer to the channel than to what you're about. Um, are you finding tone of voice exploration right now fun on the one hand or is it like deeply complicated or are you finding people like no we just need our three adjectives please um 
I mean, tone is always a struggle for me because again, like my background and my experience is still like on a spectrum far more weighted towards products and services or digital and social, let alone a brand level. So I think I have probably like an 80-20 ratio there. And so while I am advising at a sort of brand or a CMO level, how we can keep their tone consistent, I don't have as much ground or experience in writing what those three adjectives are. And um, it is deeply stressful to me because I, those things are very important, but equally require a lot of practice. And to your point in, in like the title of your book, Strategy is Your Words, as a visual thinker, products and services works really well for me. Um, words, less so. Yeah, I, I love words, but I have a different relationship with certain words over time, like we all do, yet I think there's, there has been, or there is often such a rush to get Sometimes it's not rush. It's like a painstaking fussiness to get those three adjectives and then you lock in on them and they're always words like simple but not basic, wry but not funny. There's all these like cliches mm-hmm. that flow around that world. But I, I would imagine that if you've got a, the right kind of client right now in the right kind of agency operating environment, there's something that could be super fun about playing with tone. It's just, it's just kind of getting it through the bureaucracy, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they're... Most of our clients we're lucky to have are fairly open to whatever we advise them on. I'm more, again, just trying to keep them in some guardrails for consistency. So if they've, I go back to things like brand archetypes, like if they've historically been a sage, they're not going to suddenly become a joker and then everybody's going to be okay with it. And so trying to keep them grounded in like some sense of identity. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's the same with people sometimes it can be hard to trust somebody who's willing to change on a on a dime that's good that it would be like if uh i was really serious all of a sudden <laughs> you're trying be, to throw me off <laughs> that'd be weird be weird or if you started wearing like suits and ties to these interviews <laughs> dressing dressing properly just in general would be i've tried America, you've changed me. I've tried. I've tried for you. What, what advice would you give to someone else running a strategy team? I think it's right now, it's much more about giving your team space. So one of the things that I did when I came back is I think there was an initial, as everyone started to work from home, a massive thrust of enthusiasm for like Zoom happy hours and multiple connections every day. I think my team originally had like a daily 1230 lunchtime slated for everybody to have lunch together. And I did a, a, an anonymous survey with them just being like, how are you doing do you want to talk? Do you want more time together? Or do you want to be like left alone? And the resounding majority of what was coming through was that people actually are need the space to help process some of these things themselves. Mm-hmm. Adding more time for them to connect is actually overwhelming and exhausting. So I, I try and make the check-ins shorter than usual. So normally when I would do things with my team, it might be an hour every other week. I d- now have like 15 minutes um, if they need it. If they don't need it, we don't really um, need to talk. And then I just send out like a note maybe once a week or every other week to let them know, you know, it's okay not to be okay. Mm -hmm. Take the time you need, turn down some meetings, any of those sorts of things. But I think acknowledging that, you know, this is not business as usual. 
mm-hmm. um, this is business in an extreme. Totally, totally. And I don't know if you read the article, was it in the New York Times about how being on Zoom all the time, for example, mm-hmm. or video conference, it, it actually taxes the mind more because you can't pick up little micro movements or may, maybe even tone of voice actually, but you're not picking up the the other people that you're dealing with in the regular way. You have to focus on it. And it's mm-hmm. what I found funny, you know, I, God, I guess like a lot of people making a point and then I'm going to bring it back to my own experience, but like, I'm now going to mention the word podcast. How meta, but like, <laughs> I usually do podcasts with no video and I thought it was just because I was a bit odd, but I, and I, I found that I was able to focus more on the conversation. When I do qualitative research and interviews, I don't want to use video, even though there's obviously amazing stuff from, but you can learn a lot about someone like by looking at a bookshelf or what's behind mm-hmm. them, what they have up on the wall, for example. But I actually find it difficult to focus on the conversation as much. And I just would have my eyes down and be in the conversation. And so to see this, I think it's research as a psychologist saying that uh, the video calls make the brain have to process more. And if you're doing some people are doing them like 10 hours a day, maybe more. That's, it's, it's going to affect you and it's okay to, to admit it. So there's been this new type of psych, like research coming out that maybe it will help change in a positive way the, whatever working practices happen in the future stuff as well. Have you, have you seen any interesting uh, research or trends come out of the working from home spontaneous combustion? I'm not even sure what I'm saying, but like, have you seen any interesting research or trends come out that uh, you think could stick? with working from home or working in general? No, I mean, I think um, that article was also one that I read and I found particularly interesting. I personally don't relate as an extreme introvert. This is far easier for me than going into the office every day. I'm extremely happy. I'm made to be home by myself all of the time. Um, I have seen a little bit on my team, the extremes between introverts and extroverts where, um, I think especially those that live alone and are extroverted are very much struggling and really need some more consistent connection. But I think there's just in general going to be an increased openness to working from home. I think understanding that you are going to be able to be productive when you're working from home. I think there have been serious chats. Um, I think I'm allowed to talk about this with NRG about whether or not like we will continue to hold office space um, if that if this is going to continue on longer. Mm. And so like, can we start to be a little bit more of like a work from anywhere organization or place, I think is an interesting thing that we're, mm. we're starting to talk about. And Not in sure. New, in in New York, you have a spectacular and relatively recent office space as well, right? Yes. But I think from a global perspective um, or like we already have a few of our strategists from New York who work remotely, like one lives in Mississippi, she comes in, you know, once a month, maybe to check in with the teams. I think we we might be able to be a little bit more selective in, you know, the requirement that everybody's in the office all of the time. And I think like, you know, it was a flex, very flexible policy before, but I think it will continue to open up even further. And the, again, this is just selfishly from my firsthand experience. Okay. So now that we're in, in New York, we're seven or eight weeks in, give or take, in the next month, as we approach the end of April, we move into May, what's your sense of the, the needs that your, your clients are going to have? Do you, do you sense that the things you were discussing six to eight weeks ago about May, for example, are still going to be at, in play? Or do you think it's going to change? And then how are you as an individual, as a team, as an organization 
setting yourselves up, your days up, your processes up to be able to respond to mm -hmm. such rapid unknowns? So I think the unfortunate reality that I've settled into now being, again, like you said, six to eight weeks into this is like, I'm a very process oriented, cut and dry person. I'm like, this is the way we should go. Like, let's start following the steps to get there. And I think the reality is with a lot, a, a vast majority of our clients, they are still going through this on a rolling basis. Um, so even though we have done multiple presentations on how things are going to change, I think we're starting to see more things like I'm do we have weekly CMO calls with some of our clients where it's just like, what's the COVID situation this week? How are we feeling this week? How do we want to think about communications or change anything that's going on? And I think we're going to see a lot more of this muddling through as much as I hate to use that term mm -hmm. throughout this whole process, then um, I think me as a type A strategist would, would like to see. And I think it's, again, a sort of my own personal realization that I can't, like everyone's on their own stage of grief and acceptance. Um, and I think it doesn't help that a lot of the news has equally uncertain predictions around this, right? We talk about if things do open up in May or we start to go back to work in June or back to the office in June, that um, there will be a, possibly a strong resurgence in, towards the end of summer and in May, and it'll be sort of this dance in and dance out process. Um, and so I think with that level of unpredictability, we're being much more responsive than proactive, I think, at this point. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give you an example. Is your K like a disapproving K? I'm trying to interpret that. No, no. I, I wasn't listening. I was thinking about the question I was going to ask. Don't you know how a podcast <laughs> works? No, I, I think I think muddling. I mean, no, I, I can hear your, uh, your pain in the idea of having to muddle around as someone who likes to exact thinking at the world. I like that's what planning is, Mike. It's part of what planning is. Oh, my gosh. I've, Setting the framework. Oh, gosh. I was just muddling the whole time. <laughs> I'm a total muddle. I'm like, total muddle. I'll give you an example. Let me see if you, you, you get one back. So the, the question is going to be about if you found yourself doing anything that's uh, not necessarily completely unusual, but you're like, whoa, didn't know that was going to happen. For me, a couple of nights, might have had a couple of drinks. I've been trying to not have, <laughs> not, to not drink that much. The mm -hmm. unfortunate thing is if it's there, I, I'll drink it. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, but fewer days winning. Um, and uh, with a bit of sad news when it builds up, I'm a little bit panicky. I'm like, ah, oh, all of a sudden it's like midnight or 1am. And like, if my wife falls asleep on the couch, I've gone into one of my cupboards and all my photos are out on the bed and I'm, I'm going through all the people that I know. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> that person passed away when I was young and what happened to that? I'm like, and it's not that I'm crying in those moments all the time, but like I've, I've definitely been just going through personal history also because I had a birthday, but like definitely going through personal history. Um, have you caught yourself doing anything unusual other than playing animal crossing lately? No, animal crossing is, I have to say the strangest thing. No, I mean, again, what's unusual for me going all the way back to the beginning of this conversation is that the thing I've been trying to work on is setting boundaries. And so when I don't know how to productively set boundaries, it's coming across as a temper tantrum. Okay. So I've actually, I think because of the volume of work that's on, so you mentioned earlier, like people who are in Zoom calls for 10 hours a day, I'm definitely in calls straight from 9 a.m. to 6.30. Um, so I get very- Like nonstop. 
very frustrated very quickly if we're doing something that feels like a waste of time because there'll be like, I could have eaten lunch. I could have done something else. I could have gotten a deck done. Like the list of things to do is endless. And I think I'm, I'm losing my temper more frequently, not just with partners at the agency, but also with clients. Mm -hmm. Um, cause they're, they're muddling through. I don't have as much patience at times. And, um, that for me, that's very unusual. And I think it's probably enabled by a screen. If we were there in person, it would probably be a very different physical reaction. Yeah. I'd probably shut down or I'd be quiet, but. I mean, I've heard stories of people being on so many Zoom calls that they're unable to go to the toilet. And I think week two or something, at least in in, in New York, there was the some really mean person uh, shared a video of a Zoom call where a girl went to the bathroom she put the laptop on the ground it kept recording i'm like who would share that like, that's horrible yeah. i don't think it was a setup but th- these things have been happening and um oh, it's intense are you throwing a temper tantrum or setting boundaries with me now i i can't tell no i'm not throwing a temper tantrum or setting a boundary with oh, you god that's what i was going for you would be uh, able to tell <laughs> uh, I've, I've got a question from Brandon Wu. Obviously, I've uh, I've triggered him with the Animal Crossing reference. So, <laughs> uh, Rachel, you've mentioned on LinkedIn or Twitter about how Animal Crossing is brand safe. It reminded me of how communities are emerging around "quote unquote" lo-fi beats to quarantine to mm-hmm. on YouTube. How do you how do you think you advise clients to organically insert themselves into these types of communities where people are "quote unquote" grieving? Brackets, mm-hmm. grieving, meaning death of normalcy in this context. The other funny one is, I don't know if you're in this, I'm not, but um, there's a Facebook group with like 1.6 million people in a- The ants. The ants one, what's it called? I don't remember what it's called, but it's basically a group of people who are pretending to be a <laughs> collective of ants, which is what I love about the internet. Uh, so the question is, the you know, is should your, and I look on the one hand, it's funny how people who are in advertising, like should a brand go there? But also it's a legit question, right? Um, should brands get involved with some of these places where brands typically aren't? I mean, I've always said yes. Like, so like a, a little known part of my history is that for about three or four years, I worked on, um, an internet culture conference called RaffleCon, which was specifically about like this hypothesis that internet culture was going to become mainstream culture eventually. And we, you know, I can remember when uh, Rick Astley came out on the Thanksgiving Day Parade and Rickrolled everyone and how it was like a huge mm-hmm. <laughs> beachhead moment for all of us. Um, we were frantically texting each other being like, I can't believe this is happening. And so I've always felt that the biggest opportunity, and this is part of why I started to work in the industry was I felt like there's an opportunity for brands to really start to provide tangible and different value to customers in places where they're extremely passionate about things. I think I have some really sideways hypotheses around how there might be opportunities to upend some Mm -hmm. Byron Sharp like thinking where I think historically it's been, you know, all about things that are memorable or you see something a repeated number of times. But I also think with the internet, if you can create a big enough, memorable enough moment that you can have an equally valid or valuable impression. Mm. Now, this is all my hypotheses. Like, please don't 
not, not, it's not science yet, but all science starts as art and art starts as dreams. So you're dreaming. That's totally cool. Yes, yeah, I was in a game recently, a, a soccer game, a football game, and I felt like I was sitting in a subreddit because there was a protest in at the Red Bull Stadium in New Jersey mm-hmm. by the NYCFC fans whose team was playing there, not against the Red Bulls. It's a very detailed uh, anecdote, this one, Rachel. You're going to have to pay attention. And uh, they were protesting about... NYCFC that the fans don't own. There's an owner that owns it. Not having a stadium to play at because they play at Yankee Stadium. Mm-hmm. And so I was watching the behavior and they've all got signs and they're all going for the upvote. And I'm like, what is this? And then they know when to start singing and taking photos and they're trying to get their their uh, internet anger you know, documented so it would appear up in a subreddit. And I was like, oh, I've been on the internet for a long time, but I, I don't usually behave like I'm in a subreddit. And it was, it was kind of cool until too drunk. Mm-hmm. Way too drunk. But I guess that's what subreddits are also for. There's another question from Blake Best. And it's mm-hmm. this. What advice do you have for students wanting to pursue pro bono ad work to help small businesses? Realistically, the prospected clients won't have much bandwidth. So what strategies could make the most impact? So Blake wants, he's a student, wants to mm-hmm. do some free, we'll call it pro bono, free work for small businesses, possibly out of altruism, possibly to build experience, connections and build a portfolio. How can he do it in a way that's going to help the clients when they're not always, they're not all, so many small businesses don't know what to do with marketing and you're like mm-hmm. oh we did all this work together and they're like yeah i don't know what to do with it so when they might not have much bandwidth or understanding of it and where he's he's trying to make an impact as well mm, i mean if i was in his shoes the thing that i would try and do right now is that i think facebook and instagram are donating a significant amount of ad space to small and medium businesses specifically but there's a, a lot of them who don't know what this means or how to navigate it so i would go and research the the Facebook Small Business Grants program and see if there's a way to offer your services in partnership with them because that's a guaranteed media and impact. That's a good networking opportunity. Facebook and Instagram will be hiring throughout this recession. That's true. Because isn't one of the constraints around the funding that it has to be in, in an area that Facebook has an office in? Was that part of the grant or I don't, process? I don't remember okay. if I'm honest. But if I was in their shoes, I think that would be the first thing that I would do rather than try and reach out to specifically the local businesses in your community and try and do it from a grassroots perspective. Try and yeah. see who is who is has has a coordinated effort. Okay. Yeah, and then I would say if you're going to do that kind of work, just know what know what your boundaries are, know what you're willing to do and give while understanding that the people you want to give to might not know how to receive it. Mm-hmm. Uh, welcome to a problem a lot of us in life might have for a long period of time. Am I right? Again, so much psychological insight and banter on this uh, situation today, Rachel. And then, and then also, um, I, I think even if you're trying to give and you're trying to be noble, what do they need to do for you to keep giving? Because you don't want to burn out. If you've got empathy, you want to contribute. The risk is that that's not received or reciprocated. And you're just like, oh, why isn't anything happening? I gave you, I did all this work. I interviewed a hundred people. So you got to work out how to take care of yourself with your own boundaries while also trying to improve and, and give as well. That's what I, what I think. I think we're out of questions and uh, we're at five o'clock. So for the people in the live stream, I'm going to do a little Zoom thing after this. The link's in the description. I'm not sure if Rachel's going to turn up and I just announced it. So it could just be the two of us, but happy to do a, this little private thing called Big Talk. You just got to bring a question. Um, Rachel, just by, by way of ending, what are you feeling optimistic about right now? 
Oh my God, Mark, what are you feeling optimistic about right now? I don't think there's, I'm having trouble being optimistic about anything right now. Hmm. That's weird. Uh, I would, people don't describe me as an optimist. I don't think, but I, I feel optimistic. I love the community that I'm around like nearly every day and I feel anxious for them. And I know what pain people are going to go through. Obviously everyone's got their own kind of pain. And yet I still feel optimistic about like the future because it's a group of often very intelligent, compassionate, action-oriented people. So I, I do feel optimistic about a lot of the people I'm interacting with every day. Um, I don't know. I've changed, Rachel. I've changed. I mean, I like this about you and I'm the cynic at this point in time. No, I mean, I've read a lot of the studies about how in times of a significant economic impact like this, they're followed by very prosperous years. So they're talking about how this is going to be like the roaring 20s or after World War II when the U.S. experienced really significant stages of growth. But that doesn't mean that I'm not terrified of yeah. what that means for the next two or three years, even selfishly at an individual, me and my family level. How are we, how are we going to get through this when we live in you know, 550 square feet. Yeah, totally. Like uh, for, for what it's worth, I feel like my emotions have shifted because I, I was sick early on. And so it was very close to me and I was freaking out. Like, do I, I feel I had it. I was coughing way too much and way too painfully. Uh, and then we got, you know, repeated bad news within our New York community here, families that we know either, either through communities. And uh, I've got a friend who's, who's passing away now. Uh, with the lockdowns coming, my dad's 85. I'm like, am I actually going to see him again? We've been emailing each other more than more than ever, and it's been great. And um, yeah, like I'm not without pain and tears, and yet um, more days than not, I've just enjoyed doing this. And so that's where my optimism comes from. So I could probably stir up tears now through that and other stories, and obviously way too many minutes trolling through old photos recently um because i don't know if you but like i feel i feel like in in times like this where you're seeing a lot of pain and where you're you, you might be sick or you know people who are sick and you you don't know what the future is gonna hold for me that and this this little epiphany came to me um as i was leaving my grandfather's funeral and i know i, t I told this story in like this awkward poorly written tedx talk dealing with a lot of the trauma that we grew up around um, which apparently didn't happen. But uh, I, I remember getting to the, the back of the church uh, after this talk and this, old, this older guy came up to me, must have been in his mid-80s, real stoic Aussie, you know, character. And he just came over and he grabbed my hand because uh, I just read a poem and he goes, I wish I could have spoken to my dad like that because it was a poem I wrote as my grandfather was passing away and I was, I was with him uh, through those days and when he took his last breath. And, and the thing is, like, I, th I thought in that moment or slightly after that, like, sometimes if, whether or not, like, I'm not super, I'm not religious, but like at funerals, funerals often give us an occasion to cry for everything. You're not just crying for that person. You're crying for yourself. You're crying for everyone else that you've lost. And so I'm usually quite close to those emo emotions. So when I say I'm feeling optimistic, like, it's, it's like really good because it's, I can get dark quickly. Um, and it's through feeling this connection to people who I relate to. And I have to maintain that for my sanity. And I've found it through, I'm doing a speech. I've found it through the strategy community and through advertising. And every time I travel around the world, I have these kinds of conversations with people I just sat down with. And I'm like, 
I seem to really enjoy this and it doesn't happen enough. So how do I increase it? I know, force myself onto people like Rachel in, in an intellectual kind of way. So that's, that's what's going on. Sorry to be complicated as a way of ending. You don't need to apologize. It's good to be complicated. I just apologize for myself. And we didn't didn't deny any trauma, by the way. No, no. How are you going to spend your night tonight? Saturday night? Bit of Animal Crossing? We, uh, my husband and I have been doing date nights on Saturdays, which I'm really excited about. So we're, um, we have, we're playing a different board game every week and um, he's making Negronis and it's going to be great. Oh, I've got been a, very excited. Uh, Negronis is a trigger. It's a trigger for me because I saw some really bad stuff happen the first time I ever heard of Negroni because someone drank too much of it in New York. Super triggering. I'll tell you that some other time. Um, what board game are you going to play? We were debating. Well, I was jokingly saying we should play Pandemic, but I think we're going to play one called Machi Koro, which is like a deck building game. Uh, we, we played. In case you uh, can't tell, I'm a nerd. There's, no, totally. I was yeah. I was confused by Matt. I've never. I think I've watched one episode of Mad Men. I'm like, maybe I should watch it. I just didn't relate to that alpha male character that I saw in the ads. I'm like, I don't. I don't like being around those people. Do I want to watch that after I work in the industry? Uh, we played Cards Against Humanity, the family version, which you can mm-hmm. download. And you got to print stuff out, but you can download it. And my daughter's like super. Uh, she's very sharp. And mm-hmm. so we've been at home for seven weeks, and we we get five minutes into it. My son had at a bar mitzvah, played the adult version at a young age, which he shouldn't have. And we get like five minutes into this and she goes, this is what I mean by playing a good game. I want to play a good game like this because half the pieces of the paper have words like fart, boobies and poo all over it. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was a hilarious time. And I hope you have a hilarious time tonight on your date night. Yeah, well, I'll, I'm excited to join you guys for big talks for a little bit first and then Yay. we'll... Then we'll um, Go do date night. All right. I think there'll be two and a half of us. Awesome. Thanks for joining us on Sweathead today, Rachel. Best wishes to you, your husband, your date night, to the crew at RGA. I know a lot of people look at RGA in a very fond way. Um, You've got a big role there and um, may continue to be fulfilling and satisfying without forcing you to hide from yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Peace.